Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Welcome, everyone. I'm uh, the host of Being Planful, Rowan Tonkin, the Chief Marketing Officer here at Planful. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Zoe Cook, the Commercial Finance Director at MIQ. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm really excited. We had a little prep call uh, yesterday to talk about this and we covered some really fun ground for FP&A and, uh, and a couple of things that stood out to me about our conversation um, that you wanted to talk about today was um, firstly soft skills in FP&A and how we can leverage soft skills to become a better FP&A uh, partner to the business and then uh, we can get into some fun topics because I know you've worked in the advertising industry for a long time and I've got some hot seat questions for you about how finance should think about measuring advertising Uh, given my role in marketing I always find it a a very interesting topic of conversation so firstly let's talk about um, the soft skills what what do you see as some of the missing soft skills uh, when when you're talking to other FP&A folks and, and how do you think we can improve them? I really think that when we're, when we're training people in FP&A and in accounting more broadly, um, we really miss a trick by not also including things like how to give presentations, um, how to kind of go out and pitch, how to kind of do all of that kind of more sort of showy kind of extroverted stuff that typically is not included in a kind of accounting curriculum. Um, And one of the things that I've really found in my career is that the things that make people want to work with you, that make you be able to be embedded within a business and actually help make those kind of strategic um, partnerships with business leads is really actually being able to have a conversation, being able to turn up and sort of have people warm to you Um, And kind of all of the things that if you did that sort of what does an accountant look like piece, they wouldn't be part of that at all. Um, Now, I think that's a really sort of unfair label that gets banded at us all. Um, But I, I really think that it's kind of a cliche for a reason, because we really need to work it. Um, And I always think when there's those kind of stereotypes, um, especially about professions, that's kind of an invitation to learn how to kind of go outside that because people are so surprised when you turn up and you're kind of bubbly and sort of want to know about them and, you know, remember their wife's name or husband's name and, you know, that sort of thing that like really feel to sort of those of us who've been brought up to kind of find the correct answer and come with cold hard logic um, as kind of, oh, well, you know, that's for someone else to do that kind of thing and we'll just come with the numbers. Um, And yeah, certainly in my career, I've found that uh, people will listen a lot more to the numbers piece if you can also do the sort of um, the personality piece as well. And and is that just your natural personality to be a bit more bubbly and be a bit more curious or or did (laughs) you have to work? (laughs) Um, absolutely not. Uh, I wish I could say yes, but I have to say um, it's a bit of a kind of joke amongst my friends that I'm secretly a bit of a hermit. 
and my life, like no one was worried about how I survived in lockdown, I can tell you, because <laughs> <laughs> sort of being not able to leave my house and just stuck inside watching telly and reading books, that's like my sort of like dream scenario. <laughs> but um, so it's certainly something that I've had to learn. It's certainly something that I've had to develop. Um, I don't kind of, I don't subscribe to anything that sort of says there's anything that people can't learn. I think you can learn absolutely anything um and you know if you put some kind of thought into it and um some action behind it um I'm a massive proponent of kind of do it until you become it um and yeah so no not to too I think yeah no no that's great I think the important thing that you know I'm hearing from you is you you have that self-awareness um that it's a skill that you need to develop and I think you know, in, in my career, when I've met lots of people, the people who understand, you know, am I this or am I that? It's not that they don't believe that they can't learn it. It's that they have the awareness that they have to over-index to something. It doesn't come naturally. And, and so therefore they have to spend a little bit more time on it or, or prepare more for exactly maybe a presentation, right? Um, some folks, just I feel free to jump on stage and kind of tap dance their way through a presentation because they've actually got that talent and that skill and it comes really naturally. Whereas a lot of folks, you know, obviously it doesn't. When you think about times in your career where you've had to um, maybe give a big presentation, is there any specific moments where you've really lent into over-indexing to learning something beforehand and how did that go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, my idea of hell is being put on the spot about anything. Um, so, um, like, I can just tell you straight off about it. I hate it so much. Um, and uh, the first time that I did this sort of big conference um, deck, and it was, you know, we want you to speak for 20 minutes. Um, and I had, I'd literally written it word for word and learned it like I was learning a, uh, like a film script or something. Um, and, you know, I could probably still like, do part of that presentation for you now because I, I knew that if I kind of, if there was a sentence where I was going to say a um, maybe instead of definitely, then I'd just sort of completely throw myself. Um, and um, then we got to the end of this and then we said, okay, now we're going to open it up for questions. And no one had told me anything about questions at all. Oh, I, no. just, I just felt all of the blood like rush out of my head and leave my body. And I was stood on the podium kind of gripping it and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to faint. Um, but of course it was fine um, because uh, a lot of that stuff is kind of, you know, it's just, well, I say it's just anxiety. Anxiety is very real. Um, but I don't know, there's, there's something that my dad says that I always sort of um, cling to a bit, which is that the harder I work, the luckier I get. And um, I think that's one of those things is anytime anything looks easy, it's usually because someone is so overprepared or has spent their whole career working on learning it. And I think that's one of my kind of, that's one of the things I really try and hammer home with our junior members of staff is you know, it's not that you can't do something or it's not that it's easier for somebody else. It's just they're 10 years further down their career than you. So they've had 10 years of doing it, failing, learning how to get 
back up again, redoing it, understanding what it what it is we've been talking about. Um, and yes, yeah, so <laughs> that, that was. And a lot of times, you know, the the more seasoned you get in a specific space, uh, whether that's, you know, B2B SaaS for me or mm-hmm. advertising for you, you have much better pattern recognition. And so therefore you can spot the patterns earlier and people are like, how did this person see that? And it's like, well, they've seen it about 15 times now. So uh, if they didn't yeah, understand, you'd be concerned, right? I, I really think um, that as you, something I've certainly noticed the last couple of years is there's, especially in FPNA, there's a couple of things that people always go back to. And that if you, if you don't come from a kind of, um, like private equity background or that sort of management consultancy background kind of will completely throw you, um, but also make you sound really smart if you just go in and start talking about them. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is very much learned behavior. Um, but yeah, it's also a lot of hard work as well. You, you talked about the uh, the lockdown. I know in you're in you're in London, and uh, mm-hmm. you've been through uh, I think a lot of different lockdowns with yeah, a lot of I different. Think we did- I think it was three and it might have been four. It was like three and a half. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of changing expectations from the government from what I've read. I've got a lot of friends back there. I, I lived there for a while. Can you talk to me about um, how that has impacted, you know, the mental health of FPNA folks and, and your peers and, and your team? I, I know that, you know, certainly people that I've spoken to, the intensity of FPNA just became monumental in in uh you know march time frame and it hasn't stopped what what's been your perception yeah so mental health is something that i'm super passionate about i'm a mental health first aider and one of the things i'm really proud about at miq is that i've been part of a team that's really been pushing mental health and mental health awareness as part of the kind of core well-being program um so we're just about to train I think it's like 20 mental health first aiders in the UK. Um, The sort of three weeks after we first went into lockdown um, where essentially it was like, okay, the world might be ending. What do we do for the business? What do we do for the staff? Um, I will say, and hopefully I will say this for the rest of my life, but I think that was probably the most stressful month I've ever worked. Um, we basically didn't stop working for a month and that was sort of me and um, kind of six, seven other people. Um, It was intense and, um, you know, I've always been very aware that um, recommendations that I make or analysis that I put forward has a human impact, but I don't think I've ever kind of felt it as much as when we were then looking at 700 people's salary, mortgage payments, kids' school fees, all of that, you know, very real stuff that you you can kind of disassociate a bit from um, when you're just looking at them as a part of a spreadsheet. Um, and one of the things, I mean, I'll be sort of forever grateful to MIQ for is we took really, really swift action in terms of... Um, making sure that it was communicated to our staff that you know no one was going to get fired and would secure jobs for a set amount of time um, before it was even thought about and really um, 
I think what they did really well from a mental health perspective in terms of the broader business um, was really giving people that assurance that, you know, they were going to be able to make their bill payments, frankly. Yeah. Um, um, from a sort of FP&A standpoint, obviously, it put so much focus onto what we did. And whereas probably the first year at MIQ, um, we'd kind of been able to be building kind of consistently, slowly, kind of thoughtfully around what we were doing. It was suddenly like, there's no time for that. We just need, you know, everything to be fixed now, everything to be changed now. Yeah. All of that stuff. Um, remodel the whole budget you've just spent six months working on. <laughs> um, all of that sort of thing, which, you know, it really, um, for me personally, kind of put me in a bit of a kind of odd mindset. I think I'm, I think I'm fine saying that. Um, because while all this sort of madness was going on outside, um, I didn't really have a chance to kind of think about, you know, what is going on with COVID and how kind of scared should I be or whatever. It was just like, okay, I've got a computer. I've got some screens. We're doing work. <laughs> and, yeah. um, so I think, you know, while... I think certainly for me, what happened was um, the kind of processing piece that a lot of people had done at the beginning where they were really scared, they were really frightened, um, was quite delayed. So I think I probably went through that sort of in the summer of last year, which um, I don't know whether that's a sort of good mental health thing or a poor mental health thing. Um, But certainly, you know, it was a lot. And um, I think, yeah, I ended up in a kind of a, a bit of an odd housing situation <laughs> where despite being uh, well into my 30s, um, there was sort of a series of unfortunate events. And uh, very fortunately, um, my parents just sort of said, come and stay with us. So it was kind of very visible to them how kind of strung out I was and stressed out I was because obviously you know your parents used to sing you when you're happy smiling it's someone's birthday it's Christmas it's you know (laughs) suddenly it was sort of you know oh god like bags on the eyes to hear and you know really worried about what was happening with the rest of business um so yeah, in answer to your a uh, long answer to a short question, but yeah, I think it really did take a toll. And I think what the sort of lasting impact of that will be is that a lot of people, I think now that hopefully we're past the worst of it, um, are really taking a long hard look about what does work mean to me and what does it mean within my life. And, you know, is it appropriate that for three to six months of the year while we're doing the budget, you know, you're working evenings and weekends, um, that you go through a quarterly cycle where, you know, <laughs> you don't get to have a social life for yeah. <laughs> a certain amount of time, you know, and I really, I really hope that what can come from this is that people start to have a more realistic um kind of work-life relationship um and I think you're certainly seeing that in a lot of the conversations that are happening around uh kind of flexi time and whether people are going to go back to working in offices or whether they're going to continue to work from home um you said you live in you lived in London for a bit so um you know I shaved two hours off of my day because I didn't have to commute anymore which 
was wonderful. (laughs) 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 But, um, you know, but I didn't speak to anyone for a year in, you know, face to face, which was horrible. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a balance, I think, at the moment. My, my friends got really upset at me for my time in London because I used to walk, um, I lived in Chiswick and I worked in Hammersmith. So I'd just walk down the high street every day, uh, sipping on a coffee. So, <laughs> so I, I can't empathize. I, I should be able to, uh, and now I'm being punished because, uh, it's a one and a half hour drive to, to the office. Um, so I'm being punished for my glory, glory days in, in, in London. Um, so when when you think about um, so obviously that that's the the pressure that you as the FPNA team and and the analysts really feel that that kind of you know we talk about FPNA being very cyclical and having very spike high spikes of intensity and I think you know what I'm hearing from business leaders is now they've course corrected their expectations, right? Like what used to be a monthly requirement is now weekly and what was weekly is now daily. And that is disconnected really from the burnout and, and the, um, the feelings of, of those people in those teams. Have you seen uh, in, in your networks a, a way or, or people turning towards um, how to solve for that, how to solve for burnout of, of younger professionals, um, how to solve for that mental health challenge that, that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It is really tough. Um, I am quite a proponent of, um, you know, just because it was rubbish when I was a grad, it doesn't mean that it should be rubbish for the grads who are coming through now. Like, you should make it better every every sort of cycle. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that COVID really did for our team was make us think about the way that we were producing things. And actually, you know, probably shouldn't say this, but we came up with some really creative solutions for things that previously we thought we couldn't do um, because we'd never thought about, as you said, doing the weekly reports daily or how we'd even prep that or, you know, is there a way that we could make things more agile, more bespoke, because if we were being asked for it more often, um, you know, you can't rely so much on manual processes. You have to rely on a tech, on a tech solution. So for us, the kind of the, the technological innovation side of it went like, hmm. um, but, um, you know, what comes with that is all of the focus from, uh, from the business, which was a lot. Uh, luckily, MIQ is a growing company. So yeah. uh, what's also come with that is a lot of investment. Um, which is kind of wonderful for what we're doing right now because it's, um, you know, it's a whole different world in terms of resource, in terms of uh, systems, everything than when I joined two and a half years ago. Um, Because, and part of that is because we really demonstrated the value of our team um, within that time and over the last year. I, yeah, I would be, <laughs> I'd be heartbroken if anyone had said we hadn't earned all of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, just, just, yeah, quickly stop. Shout out to all the FPNA teams yeah. for last year. Uh, every single FPNA team I know went through 
uh, you know, we, we at, at Planful called it the, the ambush, uh, then the triage and then the recovery. And, and for a lot of folks, the ambush, uh, lasted for a really long period of time, depending on your business. So shout out to everyone in FPNA listening. Um, last year was super tough and, and I know that intensity hasn't really gone away. So, uh, keep doing what you're doing and, and keep asking for the resources. Um, it would be my advice. Yeah. In terms of um, dealing with the burnout for the younger staff, um, I really genuinely believe that um, having a good understanding of around issues around mental health and around mental well-being is crucial for management teams. Um, so we know that one in four people within a year will have mental health um, uh, concerns or mental well-being um, problems, and yeah. This is the first place I've ever worked where you as a manager are trained in how to deal with that. And, you know, if it's a quarter of your staff, (laughs) that's too many people (laughs) to not be putting money behind or not be thinking about. And, you know, I certainly some of the things that, you know, people have accidentally said to me in my career around like around mental health, um, has just been absolutely wild and I really think that we're getting to a point where people have started to have the awareness of you know what is it okay to say what is it absolutely not okay to say and what do I what is my responsibility as a manager to the people who I have a duty of care for and you know their sort of pastoral care is also part of my job um Mm. And I know that, you know, a lot of people don't take that approach and kind of think, well, you know, their career progression is part of my job and their job performance is part of my job and that's it. Now, that might be true. You know, that might be what you think. Um, You might think that staffing out your team is the only thing you need to deal with. There are stats around that if people have good managers who they respond to, they will have to take a 30% pay rise to consider going somewhere else and, you know, getting a two-day training and kind of how to actively listen to your staff is a hell of a lot cheaper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keep giving them those pay rises or having to look elsewhere for staff all the time because we know that, you know, recruiting in costs way more than developing staff. So, Absolutely. I think I think my point is like, if you can't view it on an emotional level, view it on a financial level. Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, when you're saying a quarter of your staff will go through mental health challenges in a 12 month period, I imagine that, that I I don't know the data um, and I probably should, but I would guess that that's probably even higher at management levels. Right. Um, and therefore you've got very stressed out managers who are struggling to deal with their own things, trying to manage stressed out, you know, employees and teams. And that's not a good combination at all. Um, I, I can tell you if I looked at the number of mental health meditations on my Peloton app, I did, uh, it was pretty high in Q2 of last year. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I do do meditations pretty frequently, but I'm sure it was a big spike in Q2 of last year, just trying to clear my mind of everything that was going on. Uh, And that's really important as a manager to do 
for yourself because you can't help anyone else if you can't help yourself. 100%. So let's turn to a little bit to advertising. So I, I imagine a big part of the stress for you during last year was the fact that a lot of budgets were pulled from a lot of organizations. So MIQ, fast growing organization in, you know, one of the epicenters of advertising, London, obviously London, New York. Um, what was that like from a business perspective, just seeing, you know, probably uh, media budgets being cut left, right and center. And, and how do you even think about modeling that? Uh, <laughs> um, from a business perspective, I think uh, it was terrifying. Um, you know, we even thinking about how our sort of CRM setup was, we didn't have anything to say we've lost, you know, we didn't have a kind of data clicky to say, hey, we lost this business due to COVID. So it was things like, okay, we need to build that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, we really put a lot of time into rebuilding our uh, sales pipeline reporting. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at that basically once in the morning, once in the afternoon. Um, you know, you'll know as well as I do that the first thing that gets paused as soon as there's any sort of um, any sort of recession, any sort of contraction in the economy is marketing spend. Um, anyone who's ever managed a budget will know that the first thing that uh, that gets taken well, first thing that gets taken away is TNE, and then second thing is marketing. Um, and you know that's really scary because then we're looking at this is our whole business, but we also have these kind of um, bright spots on the horizon as well. Of well, okay. You know, we do a lot of work around the elections and, mm -hmm. you know, turned out to be the highest, highest, most expensive advertising election of all time ever. You know, um, we, we, we basically prepped a lot of different scenarios. Uh, I think we had seven working models. Um, yeah, seven. Um, and <laughs> those were being updated, like I said, like sort of twice a day, really. Um, wow. We really had to sit right on top of it um, and try and work out what that was going to mean for the business. We also just decided this is what we'll view as an acceptable level of loss if it comes to that. It didn't. Um, actually, what we found was um, so. What we do essentially is buy ad space online for advertisers for advertising agencies. And what we found was that inventory became quite cheap, but actually really effective because suddenly everyone was sat at home. Um, yeah. So you know, suddenly your conversions start looking really good. Um, and you know, there was a month where it was yes, really scary. Um, and then we started to see things pick up. Um, for us, a lot of the things that we looked at were we started drilling down much further into things like what categories are turning off and turning on. Um, so, you know, it won't be a surprise to anyone, but advertising and travel really, really tried <laughs> yeah. up last year. <laughs> um, 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 Things like that um, that are you know super high top level, but actually you know, we don't really think about our business like that. Um, 
we think about it in a very with a very different lens. So what it did for in terms of our reporting is actually now it's going to be so much more rich because we were sort of forced to think about all these things that you know previously would would kind of we were sort of on the fence about how much of a role uh, they played as levers. Um, whereas now it means that all of the models that we can build are sort of much more uh, yeah much more detailed I suppose. Yeah, much more complexity. I know we we had to go through that ourselves. We did. I, I say that my product marketing team became a a group of uh, research analysts for about a month to try and assess, you know, who would who would thrive, who would survive, and who would unfortunately not not make it, uh, because that was the reality of of what was happening. And so that's a complete new dimension into all of your models, right? Like industry or vertical or however you wanted to classify it. And so now you're getting that that level of granularity, and you've given something to, to your point earlier around, you know, uh, you proved the value of the of FP&A to the business. Now the business is like, wow, we've got vertical level information. We've never had that before. Um, so that accelerant really, really occurred within your business, which is really interesting. But you know, you, you're doing it under a really high pressure forcing function environment. I also really want to say that the sort of sales teams um, at MIQ were incredible. Um, it was like the day after we went into, so we got sent home, I think it was a week before we actually went into sort of national lockdown. Um, and I think it was the day after we got sent home, they were already planning, you know, I think they called it like make lemonade, like what are actually the opportunities that are going to come out of COVID? So let's focus on home fitness. Let's focus on leisure wear. Let's focus on, you know, um, at home beauty, things like that. Um, so from a strategic standpoint, like the business leads were, you know, phenomenal at saying, let's not just get stuck on focusing on what's being lost. Let's start yeah. thinking about what we can actually gain out of this as well um well that, yeah liquor sales probably went up uh, <laughs> too i'm sure i'm sure uh I, I saw something that uh you know liquor sales for at home in the u.s went up by like 60 percent or something like that which is <laughs> quite scary uh, so uh in terms of uh let, let's stay on the advertising front what uh, what do you uh, believe in terms of should you measure everything in advertising? Oh my gosh! Um, I, I think you have to start with lots and then drill down, um, and then sort of edit. I suppose is the right is the right term yeah. because um, one of the things that. Uh, I probably saw more when I worked in e-commerce than when I worked mm -hmm. in advertising um, is that when people just have all of the data, uh, you end up in that analysis paralysis of I can't actually work out what is the, um, what's the sort of fulcrum that things are actually dependent on. Um, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> People will take over what they will. Yeah. Um, so, you know, instead you end up with too many variables. And from a financial modeling standpoint, um, you end up with something that's useless because it's, uh, it's not 
it's almost like not sensitive enough, but also too sensitive to actually yeah. do anything, right? So for me, uh, what you need to do is work out what are your strategic priorities and then how do you build your models backwards from them? Um, what are the things that you want to, uh, that really do actually contribute to um, changes within your business? Um, what I kind of always say to the guys on my team is if you think it's interesting, give it a go. See if it's there. If it's not, you've not wasted anything because you've learned a new, you know, a new ratio, a new skill, a new way of modeling it. If you put it all in a, into a model and it actually doesn't change anything, then, right, you've lost, what, half an hour, hour of Excel work where you probably, you know, bolstered your kind of knowledge of how models work or understanding CPM or yeah, or you know that that's not a driver of the business, yeah, right? And, exactly. and you can rule it out for future. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, from my perspective, I think one of the things that when I talk to my FP&A partners is I really try and get them to think about the intent behind what we're doing, right? Like a campaign is not the same as another campaign, right? Like and, and I think that's where my ask of FP&A leads is to come and sit with folks like me and try and understand the business strategy because one campaign at a brand level will lead to no, no revenue, right? Because it's not intended to do that generally. Um, but if it's a very D2C e-commerce business, which is like a shop now button, <laughs> that's absolutely meant to lead to, to purchase, right? Um, and so you want to optimize that for purchase, whereas the brand level advertising, you want to optimize for different metrics. And, and so my ask of FP&A folks is to go and figure that out with your business partners because you can't just take you know, impression CPM and create a ROAS model and look at it as one big model. It just won't work. I don't know if you believe that or not, but uh, that's my. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the best experience that you can get is going and sitting with the people who sell what your business sells and say, Hey, how do you sell it in? Like what are the things that are important what is it that when you're sat in front of agencies or advertisers that you're saying are the things that set us apart? Because that's what we should be measuring. <laughs> Those are the things. That's the differentiators. Um, we we used to have this all the time actually at Groupon, where um, and this is you know this is going to date me, but um, it was kind of one of the first places that really played around with when you were sent an email, your campaign might be right at the top or uh, it will have different placement on the, on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the planners would always, you know, this would be like the main thing, like where was it placed on the page? And, you know, not having had a marketing background, like I couldn't get into my head that that was the same as like, if you're in a supermarket, like, you know, where is, what cereal is placed where will determine which one you buy. Um, and so they were doing all this like super cool, like A-B testing, which in hindsight should have hundred percent been part of our models. But, you know, we weren't mature enough at the time to kind of be able to be pulling that in. But 
it's those sort of things where unless you can understand why is this important to the business, why does the business spend so much time looking at these certain things, you're not going to be as effective of, of a business partner in your modeling as you would be if you had done that. One of the things that MIQ does that I think is excellent is whenever we have new joiners, uh, they basically spend the first week sat with all the different teams and kind of learning, uh, like learning what they do. And um, you know, as a hiring manager, it's quite frustrating because it means that you're first <laughs> you have your people. I want this person productive, yeah. <laughs> but what it means is that you don't have people who join and are like, I don't know what programmatic is because they've just spent a week learning it and learning what's important about it and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny in that in that time frame. I think the kind of you know mid two thousands people forgot that that you know it still was the four P's of marketing and and what you were talking about there was place, but everyone just assumed place was email, right? Yeah. Uh, but actually, it was like a little P, which is place within email or place within website or place within you know wherever that thing was, and uh, and it's actually so important to 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 that uh, promotion or, or uh, offer or product or whatever it, the other P's in marketing, I guess, price. Um, Rowan, I should should know these. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel, I feel like we're doing your kind of like, uh, you know, year one. Uh, yeah, but but it's a good fundamental, you know, FP&A didn't learn the four P's in marketing, right? Um, so if you're a business partner to, to marketing um, and you don't know what the four P's are, go and find out, right? Because uh, it'll give you maybe a different paradigm than you're thinking about today. So talk to me about, um, you know, what, what's the next steps for, for Zoe Cook, right? Like, what are you trying to develop uh, your skills in right now? Right now, you've got a team under you, you you're really trying to mature them, you're trying to make the world a, you know, you're trying to leave it better, right? Um, but what, what are you trying to better in, in your personal career? Um, I think what I've done quite well so far is kind of taking teams from having quite a kind of immature data structure to something that's a lot more streamlined. Um, and I think what I've always seen uh, of myself is that, you know, that's quite a transitional role. Like you can kind of do that for two years and then people kind of want to want you to do other things. And um, so now I'm really trying to focus on those sort of other things and yeah. probably taking um, more of a broad uh, perspective. That's why my role isn't fp anymore, it's commercial finance, because we're starting to think about more, um, more of the kind of commercial business partnering side uh, and more of the sort of system side. Um, and then how we kind of put all of that under the big umbrella and the activities, and then how we put all of that under the sort of umbrella of commercial finance. So I think, yeah, probably broadening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and probably doing more sort of accounting than I would uh, <laughs> naturally want to do because I think now we're at a stage where, uh, you know, <laughs> people are starting to talk about like valuations and what private equity houses might want to see and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that sort of more kind of due diligence piece. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm being, being realizing that I'm going to have to learn that by hook or by crook. So. Yeah. 
did you um did you what what did you study when you uh, were in college? Uh, I studied government and then I studied uh, political theory for my master's. So um, it was about as far from accounting and finance as you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Um, I had the great pleasure of being one of the lucky people who graduated into the uh, financial crash. So um, I went from kind of uh, sort of being under the impression that any job that I could ever dream of, I could just walk straight into and, you know, I'd smile and everyone would just sort of uh, fall on my feet for how clever I was (laughs) and uh, ended up sort of, I think I was working three part-time jobs and um, living with my mum and dad and just being like, this is like another level. And um, I did that for, I think, three three, six months and was just like, this is unsustainable. I'm tired all the time. Like I need to get whatever the next job that I interview for. Uh, I'm just going to really, like, I'm, I'm really going to put a lot of effort into the interview. Um, and I'd flunked like, I don't know, I must've flunked like 20 interviews before that, which um, I, you know, <laughs> is like the most demoralizing thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, um, It's really, a really, I really feel for people who leave university and then need to find a job because you know I I've worked part-time jobs since I was 14 but at 22 I still had no relevant experience to do anything yeah Um, and uh yeah it was really demoralizing and um one of my friends had just started work had started working at Groupon which was I think six months old in the UK when I joined um and I basically they they run me up I don't I haven't actually ever told this properly so <laughs> uh, we're ready they can't, they can't they can't fire me now because uh, <laughs> they're anymore. But, um, they rang me up and it was like I remember it so vividly because it was really snowy and the signal in my house is terrible at the best of times but even worse in bad weather and they were like yeah we'd like you to come in and interview for a job and they're team and I was like yes absolutely I will do that so I went in having no idea what I was going to interview for and I sort of had in my head like as long as it's not sort of accounting finance like I can just blag it like I'll just I'll say whatever I don't I don't mind like whatever whatever whatever. and I went in and they were like so this is for a job for like an accounting intern and I was sort of like oh my god and I was like I don't care I just I need a job so badly um, and I don't know if they could sort of smell the desperation or if they also just needed people so badly. I think yeah. it's probably the latter. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, like, I made the best of it. And, you know, I, what I sort of realised was what you think that your life is going to be when you have to make those decisions at 17 is not what your life is going to be. And, you know, if it is, then that's great. And if you, you know, if you know what you want to do, like, excellent. If you don't have a clue what you want to do or you have a very set idea and that does not transpire for you, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, yes, you might have to change your expectations. You might have to make the best out of something that you hadn't envisaged, but you absolutely can do that. Um, I still... uh, um, I'm still not entirely sure I want to be uh, <laughs> working accounting and finance. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'm quite far deep into it now. Um, 
but yeah I don't know I think you need to leave a bit of space in your life for that sort of uncertainty well it sounds like last year you know even though it was a very tough year you got to kind of uh, take that political theory and and <laughs> political understanding in your current role right like you know if, if uh, you know you understand the politics side of the world and you're in the advertising space those two things meshing together must have been an interesting time for you yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I really learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would have helped if I studied accounting and finance. <laughs> Great, yeah. Well, it was funny you said before, you know, in the G marketing budgets are the first thing to get get cut and you graduated in the GFC. That was uh, when I turned up in London trying to sell marketing software. It was uh, in the middle of the GFC trying to sell to companies to sell them marketing budgeting software. They're like, How did that go? To budget what? <laughs> um, so it, it it was a tough few years initially, but uh, eventually people realized that they could optimize their budgets using our software. So we did okay in, in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, fun, funny kind of coincidence there. So Zoe, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your insights into, into advertising, but more importantly, the raw and honest conversation about mental health and and mental health in finance i think that was really important for folks and uh i want to thank you for being a guest on uh, being planful oh thank you for having me i really enjoyed this yeah thanks so much all right bye yeah. make sure you hit subscribe on apple Podcasts, google play spotify or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode thanks for stopping by